Since 2005, Blue Hat has been where the security research community and Microsoft come together as peers. To debate and discuss, share and challenge, celebrate and learn. On the Blue Hat podcast, join me, Nick Fillingham. And me, Wendy Zanoni, for conversations with researchers, responders and industry leaders, both inside and outside of Microsoft. Working to secure the planet's technology and create a safer world for all. And now, on with the Blue Hat Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Blue Hat Podcast. We have a very special guest with us today. We would like to welcome Amanda Russo to the podcast. Amanda, thank you for joining us. Would you like to give us a, an introduction? Yeah, thanks for having me join. Um, so my name is Amanda Rousseau. I currently work at Microsoft on the Microsoft Offensive Research and Security Engineering team. I know that's a mouthful, but we call it Morse, um, mainly focusing on our vulnerability research, fuzzing and security engineering. So a lot of work to do. Sounds really busy. I'm glad that you explained Morse because I saw it and I was not clear on what the acronym meant. So thank you for that. Can you give us a glimpse of what your day-to-day looks like, especially working from home? You know, that adds new and interesting challenges to your day. You could just give us a little overview of what your day looks like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thankfully, I get to work from home full time, which is really great. But um, my day to day, you know, I really try to focus on higher level issues, kind of spanning cross orgs, mainly focusing in the Windows OS. And what we try to focus on is uh, trying to whittle down the threat landscape. So maybe that means um, getting rid of a complete bug class, out of bounds memory leaks, or Maybe it's related to malware, like if malware is abusing some type of like DLL load hijacking, if it, can we remove that from the threat landscape? So some of these issues I'm trying to tackle, hopefully they're a little bit longer term, but you know, it's something in my wheelhouse. So as steady as it goes. <laughs> and Amanda, how long have you been at Microsoft now? Just a, a year or two? Yeah, just over a year. Uh, I started in May, so it'll be a year and a month now. So um, it's been a wild ride. <laughs> and and we'll, we'll get into that in just a minute. But but you're also known by another name online. Are you are you okay sharing? Yeah, yeah. So on on Twitter and everywhere else, my handle is Maori Unicorn. I'm known for Maori reverse engineering workshops and and reverse engineering malware for the public. So it's yeah my other persona. <laughs> and I think, uh, you know, unicorn in the tech space and in the infosec space is a fun little word that gets used in lots of different permutations. When you say malware unicorn, when you came up with malware unicorn, or did someone give it to you? Was it your creation? Why, why are you malware unicorn? Tell us that story. Yeah. So when I worked at a startup, we all joke that, hey, was our startup going to become a unicorn, you know, or a decacorn or something? And because I worked with malware, I was like, well, maybe I'm a malware unicorn. And then that kind of just stuck. And so I just kept using it. So I really didn't think of it that seriously. But now it's like my identity online. <laughs> um, so I had to roll with it. Now you are the definition. You 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 have defined malware unicorn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this is a you know an audio podcast, and you know there is not a visual component to it. But I do want to point out that you are sitting in front of a an absolutely beautiful uh, backdrop of silk flowers. And folks that follow you online will be familiar with this. But it is gorgeous. You made this. I think you said it's it's been expanding over time. You might be making it larger. 
again. Um, and I, the reason I ask is that, you know, Malware Unicorn, you're not just about malware and reverse engineering. You're also about art and creation and sort of beautiful stuff. You want to talk a, bit, a little bit about that or should we save that till later in the conversation? Oh, uh, yeah, we can talk about origin stories. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I actually never thought I would be in this field. When I was younger, I was really good at like Legos and stuff and art. I was very creative. I was always building things. Uh, I even went to my undergrad for graphic design. And then one day, you know, took a computer science class and realized I was really good at that. So I have this whole other side to me that is just like creative and, and doing projects that it tries to get me off of the computer, basically. So I love painting, I love sculpting, all of these other things. But I, I like keeping it as a hobby. So keeping the two separate. <laughs> it is an amazing hobby. I just need to call it. I, I did ping Amanda earlier today because on Twitter, there are some photos of the work you did for a birthday party. And this is not just like, hey, I slapped together some cupcakes. This is like a water vortex table, a carving, and I don't know what the material was of a mermaid. Like, I am in, I'm in awe, you know. And, and then separate from that, we we have had meetings when you did, um, you know, the strike presentation, and Amanda shows up in this amazing outfit, and it's like, oh, I made this. <laughs> it is. Very impressive. But your creativity level is at like the highest bar that I think anyone can set. It's just you have so many talents. So I agree with you, Nick. The unicorn part does not end at malware. It's everywhere. The whole thing. You're just a unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So Wendy, you just you just uh, mentioned the word strike. Uh, we'll just I'll just sort of jump in here with the context. So for listeners, strike. Uh, if you've listened to the podcast before, we, we've said that before. We we run a program called Strike at Microsoft, where uh, engineers or really anyone at the company can come and attend and learn about best practices for security engineering. Amanda, you presented at one of the most recent strike events, and I believe your your talk was on fuzzing or, or a little bit more than that, but can you tell us a little bit about that session, what you presented and sort of why you thought that was an interesting topic to bring to the sort of broader internal security community at Microsoft? Yeah. I mean, a part of what I did at Strike was more standing on my soapbox of trying to reach out to devs and trying to get security integrated earlier in their development process. And whenever we think about producing products or features, Security shouldn't be the very last thing that we think about. We're trying to push it out, right? It should be from the get-go, from when we make the design. And we should be talking with folks early on and making those relationships. Um, not only that, but integrating it into our tests, into our unit tests and our functional testing, where fuzzing comes in. And so most of the time it's going to be like an afterthought, which we don't want to have that happen. So my goal is to try to change that have everything more automated. I think one of the things that you reach out to folks, even anywhere in any field, if you make things more seamless, it'll be easier for them to get used to it, basically. So slowly by slowly, we're trying to make a change. <laughs> And was this talk a sort of an introduction, like a 101 to fuzzing? The strike audience is sort of fascinating. So, you know, Microsoft, huge company. We have hundreds of thousands of employees across the globe. Uh, the strike community is, I think it's, is it 100,000? It's a very, very large community of folks inside Microsoft that are either directly focused on, on engineering, um, but want to learn more about security and want to get better at writing more secure code, et cetera, et cetera. So was this, this was an introduction to fuzzing or was this, what was the specific sort of theme? 
it's a mixture of like, this is what you need in order to get your product out the door. And as well as this is fuzzing 101. I want you to get used to the terms. I want you to get used to the concepts so that you can apply it yourself. Because, you know, there's only so many people in Morse to tackle on all of the Windows org, right? So we need that help and just trying to get people integrated with it and used to it and seeing it. Because some folks think that it's a huge leap. It's just very intimidating to even start fuzzing or doing anything security related. So the more we can get them used to it, the easier it is for them to integrate it into their own process. I'll ask the silly question. So what is fuzzing? My understanding of fuzzing is that you throw arbitrary random input into your code to see if you can break it and see what happens. So you're, you're looking outside the scope of what an expected command or ex expected input might be. And now you're looking at throwing random noise and seeing if that can break it in some capacity. Is that, is that right? Uh, or, or, you know, how would you describe fuzzing for folks that have heard the word but don't know the definition? Yeah. So let, let's start out from like just basic pen testing concepts, right? So we have this thing called static analysis where we're just reviewing the code. And then we have dynamic analysis, which is, you know, we're applying it in its real environment. And because what you see in code is not exactly how it's going to function as it's executing, because maybe there's concurrency or there's problems with asynchronous processes going on that we can't usually detect as it's running. So we have tools such as fuzzing in order to help us like expand that tool set that we need. Because, you know, there's only one of us, but, you know, if we try to have all these different scenarios that we need to test, let's automate that and make it faster for us. So maybe it'll take maybe 24 hours for a fuzzing test to finish or, you know, a whole week, depending on like how you, you set it up. But being able to just identify when you need it, that's another case too. Um, I think that was one of the things I wanted to get across in that strike presentation is that, you know, if you're doing any type of inter-process communication or any parsing or any like any type of remote communication, you're going to need fuzzing and just trying to relay, like, we need to do this because this is where a lot of the bug bounty um, bugs come from. I'll jump in and just give a little uh, overview of what this event was. With Strike, we generally dig deep into really complex technical topics. But this was a very unique event because it was called Shift Left. We were looking to... Uh, focus on the folks that maybe they're touching, you know, code, they're working with tools, they're doing things, but maybe security is not in their everyday, you know, thought process. And so we were looking at how can we enlighten some of these attendees to understand why security is important, how we can shift left. And I know in your talk, you did bring up shift left because that was the overall theme. Could you explain, you know, what shift left means for you as a security professional and for those that maybe are not as familiar with that term? Yeah, for me, it's it's just integrating it into the whole development process That's from design to architecture to the code and the features, you have to have it integrated throughout. And it doesn't just apply to specific products. It's across org. Security is everywhere in every single industry as well. So anything that is digital, <laughs> you're going to have to have some type of security in it. So the main thing is just letting people know that it's there, be aware of it, and, and kind of lower the bar for entry, right? The more people are educated about it, the more they can apply it. So two follow-up questions here. I don't know which which one we should we should take first, but I'd love to 
following on from this guidance around fuzzing. Again, this is an audio podcast. I know you had slides and, and visuals, but if you had any sort of more uh, specific guidance around where to start on next, uh, where, where to go next to learn more about fuzzing and sort of understand some of the tooling that is there. Do I need to build my own fuzzer? Can I use stuff that's built into my ID of choice or whatever it is? That's question one. Question two is, I'd love if you could speak a little bit about the connection between your role in Morse and fuzzing and how those two things are sort of connected in terms of, uh, you know, were you presenting at Strike as Amanda Rousseau, who is an expert in fuzzing, or were you presenting at Strike as Amanda Rousseau, who works for the Morse team and does all the, the amazing work that they do, of which fuzzing is an important component and that there are sort of some sort of connective tissues? Um, I don't know which one you want to take first. Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely the latter half there. But yeah, I'll, I'll explain fuzzing a little bit. So I don't have any slides, so I'll do my best <laughs> through my voice. So the main concept is you're just shoving data into whatever function that you need to be fuzzed that needs to have any type of analysis, right? And that could mean different types of fuzzing. Maybe it's bit flips. Say you have a structure that was converted into a, a blob of bits or, or bytes, um, and you just have some type of mutator that mutates the bytes or flips the bits in order to change the outcome of what the function is going to do. Um, so we have these tools and different types of fuzzers to do these types of mutations or or changes to get the program to do to go down a different route. And we, we would call that coverage if we're trying to cover the whole program and, and all the different routes that it would go so we can figure out if it's a good fuzzer or not. It's, it's mainly just trying to get the program to go down routes that usually wasn't intended to go down. Um, and this is where, you know, we have all of these millions and billions of cases that it would execute over like a 24-hour period or for a week, however long you want to run it. And even it, it depends on how you set it up. So if, say you have a server and client, you know, you have to have like a special fuzzer that will be able to handle that type of scenario. So maybe libfuzzer right out the door is not going to be something that you would use. Maybe you need to use something that's custom made. But this is where you have a conversation with your security team to help guide you through that process. It doesn't mean that you have to be an expert in fuzzing. You just have to have the basics on, you know, you can discuss it with your security team. Um, so <laughs> for, for the strike event, I mainly was representing Morse and trying to just speak on my soapbox there while fuzzing. One of the, the, the gripes that I've heard from the program management team is folks see it as intimidating. So my goal was to definitely get folks on the same level as, as me. I, when I first started, I didn't know anything of fuzzing. <laughs> so it's been a whole year of learning on the job as well as to get to a mode where I can tell developers what they should be doing. <laughs> so um, it's great that I can take my experience from what I learned on the job in order to tell devs how to do it as well. Yeah, and I wonder again. I, I know that the work that you do in the Morse team, the whole Morse team, is is confidential, so we, we sort of can't get into specifics here. But could you just to to help folks understand a little bit more about what Morse does, and perhaps if we're also sort of thinking about the security researcher community that's out there. So Wendy and I, we're we're in the the MSRC team. The broader MSRC group receives submissions from external researchers about potential sort of bugs and vulnerabilities that they've found. Uh, some of those can come out of the result of fuzzing. So external researchers and internal researchers fuzzing a Microsoft tool, a Microsoft property, and finding 
bizarre things happening that are potentially could be leveraged for a vulnerability, they send it into MSRC. Are you able to talk a little bit more about the role of the fuzzing technique and then the work that that sort of Morse does? Because my understanding is that Morse sort of has multiple layers. You guys are sort of proactively building security features. Uh, you are also reacting to sort of classes of bugs and sort of submissions to obviously harden windows. How does fuzzing fit into that or does it not? I think fuzzing... Let me just explain. If I was a, a malware reverse engineer, I yeah. would say... Which or, you are. I, I am, <laughs> in a way. Um, I would say reverse engineering is just a tool. It doesn't define what I do as the job. Like there's other parts that I guess you combine with that skill set. And I think fuzzing is just a tool for us to maximize our labor because there's only so many of us. And there's other layers besides just fuzzing. I mean, we have code review, we do a design review, we do like complete audits of products. So it can really takes all of your knowledge across the spectrum in order to a- apply it to different products. Like maybe, you know, I may not be good at Linux. Like I know we have like a Linux division, but that's not my wheelhouse, but we have others that specialize in that. So there's all these different parts of the team that focus on what they specialize in. Um, For me, I'm working on the end of malware. So since my background is malware analysis, how can I handle bug classes or vulnerabilities or even abuse of of certain features? How can I remove that from the threat landscape? Um, So that's what I try to focus on at least. Um, But others, you know, we have a remote team, we have a Linux team, we've got cloud. So it's, it's all over the place, but the more diverse folks we have, the more we can tackle these different types of issues. I want to keep it on the fuzzing topic, but I want to shift gears a little bit. And you just released a tool, an open source tool called Rusty Red Damza. Um, and you had mentioned uh, previously before when we were chatting before we started recording that this is the originally was an older tool and you rewrote it in Rust. Can you tell us a little bit about the tool and then why Rust? Why did you choose Rust over any other language? Yeah, yeah. So this is a tool that is so prevalent among fuzzing in general. Like every single web fuzzing, binary fuzzing, someone's going to mention some type of wrapper around Redamza. And we were using it in our tool set as well as like a secondary binary manipulator. Um, And so I was just annoyed that I couldn't build it in with what I was using. And we've always been working with Rust. So I was like, hey, uh, this tool is annoying me and how I can build it why don't I rewrite the whole thing and use it in my tool set? (laughs) And so a lot of people were on board with this because it really made building and deploying really easy. So I was really happy to get that out the door and share it with everyone else because I know maybe it's useful for a greater community. I'm always the one for sharing things and and open sourcing things. I think on my website, I have like a lot of um, malware reverse engineering workshops that I host for free. So I'm really big on trying to educate folks when they can't receive that type of education. I saw that. I was looking at your website earlier and there was even just some entry level, I think there was an entry level course. And I was like, actually, I might look into this because it's a, it's a language that I, I don't know. Like I would love to know more about what you do and what is malware and why how would you reverse it? What, you know, what are the basics? Like, what does that even look like? Not saying that I think I could go down that path, but you never know. But I love that you make that available to everyone because 
I think in the security industry, if we're not all working together, we're not going to win this thing. I don't think everyone's going to win ever, but we're not going to stay ahead of, you know, emerging threats. And, you know, if we're not sharing this information, so for you to go and create that website and share and, you know, make things open source, I think that is like a next level of being a great security engineer is sharing that, that knowledge and understanding for folks. So I love that website. How long has that been up? It's been a while. Uh, I've changed it a couple of times, but it's been up since 2017. So I try to change up the design because I, I enjoy doing web design. So it's, it's fun to edit when I can. But now that I have a three-year-old, it's really hard to find time <laughs> to do anything. <laughs> so Amanda, we touched on origin story a little bit there. But um, if we could come back to it, because you have had a, a fascinating career uh, and you have so many strings to your bow, like, you know, we've just been talking about out fuzzing, but that's just one small, uh, that's one facet uh, of your level of expertise. When I was preparing for uh, this podcast, I stumbled upon an interview you did where you talked about some previous roles you had in your career doing uh, sort of forensic work. I think you called it dead box forensics or dead, yes. dead box yeah. Is that something you can talk a little bit about? Because I found that absolutely fascinating. I would love to learn. Maybe there's a bit of context here. Like, you know, uh, do you want to give us a quick little history uh, lesson of how you got here? But I would love to learn about this forensics work that you did previously in your career. Yeah. Yeah. So one of my very first jobs out of college, I was a, forens a computer forensic technician. I worked at the DOD Cyber Crime Center, where we did a lot of forensic cases for the government. And that's the story. That's the U.S. Department of Defense, right? So yes, this is a yes, this is a government yes. entity. Yes, government. Yes, <laughs> uh, and we did a lot of forensic cases, and I, I learned on the job. So luckily, you know, when you're there, you get a lot of training. And eventually, I got to the part where I was doing real major crime criminal cases for different areas. You know, like. It could be murder or something. Yeah. <laughs> and then once I got a handle on that, I went up into intrusions where I got a lot of my reverse engineering experience. So I have testified in court before and I've done all of these like forensic reports and everything. So I'd have that side of me that's kind of in the past, but it was kind of like a stepping stone into this security field. But for dead box forensics, basically what that means is you take a PC tower, take out the hard drive inside, do a forensic image on it, and then do analysis on it. So it's not a live, it's kind of, I guess the opposite of that would be if you're doing live forensic analysis, you would do, be doing a live memory image of like a server or something and, and intrusions, or you're sitting there and doing forensics as it's on and, you know, you could be stomping on the evidence while you're doing it. So that, that's the main difference. But I got to learn the foundations of what is stored on a computer and had to write tools for myself to help me do analysis. And so it was really fun, but I knew that I could do more. So I, I found myself wanting to learn more about just the security in general. So I've hopped around in a lot of different jobs. <laughs> Wow. Wow. Oh my gosh. We, I'm just looking at the time here. I'm trying to work out how to ask all these questions that I have. So dead box forensics. So I'm thinking of a scene in CSI, I don't know, whatever. Like I'm thinking of a Hollywood-ish crime scene where a, a computer is removed from the crime scene. It's turned off. It's not connected to power anymore. So you can't do a memory dump, but there's going to be, there's going to be storage in that, whether it's a, a hard drive or some other sort of solid state thing. And so you come in and they're, they're going to give you that. And then you, have to somehow make, as you say, a forensic copy. So you, you're, I guess that means you're trying to copy the raw sort of bits and bytes state of that hard drive without fully initializing it just in case there's some sort of trip 
thing that would erase all the data. So like, oh my gosh, I want to know all about that. But I also want to know, like you said, you learned all this on the job. So, so how did you get a, like, how does that happen? Because that sounds like it's, you know, don't you have to already know how to do that to be a DOD dead box forensic analysis? Well, so when you're doing forensic imaging, you start at the bottom rung. You just take it out of the the PC tower, make an image, and then give it to an examiner, a forensic examiner. So I found out, I learned super fast, was able to grow out of being a forensic technician into a computer examiner, learned on the job with a mentor, of course, um, as well as taking training did really good at that, then moved up to intrusions where I found out I was good at that as well. Um, so I was just like the sponge that just kept learning and applying and, and doing. But it, it was a lot of trial and error, like being probably the only woman on a team all the time and being one of the youngest, it was really tough to keep up. But I felt like a sponge when I was in my 20s. <laughs> I think you did okay. And you have a really, you know, as we just touched on, you have a diverse background, but because of your diverse background, you know, what are the pros and cons that come into play with the work you do now? Um, I find that because I have that creative side of me and I'm able to take these abstract concepts and explain them in layman's terms, either visually or um, verbally, or even demonstrating it and then talking to it. I think whenever I talk to comms or PR, they love talking to me because I take these concepts and explain them really basically for them without being too complicated. And I find that that's really valuable when you're writing reports or you're trying to communicate with different teams. I find that being in security, you have to be social. You have to be communicating. You have to be working together. It's not an individual effort. It's definitely, you have to feel like you're being on a team. I don't know how many folks have been on team sports. I did lacrosse in college and, you know, everyone has their own role and you're dependent upon that role. So I find that being able to feel like you're on a team and and collectively do something together is, is going to make the whole process easier. So, and and even when I did intrusions and forensics, you know, I, I did consulting work with forensics where we had to, a whole team had to fly somewhere onto the project and like save the client from being hacked in that moment. (laughs) One of the claims that I have is that I was on up. The client gave me a private jet to fly out that night to help them. So that was the only fun thing I had in my career. I hope, I hope you took a lot of photos. <laughs> and I hope it also came with a pilot, right? It yes, was, it came uh, with a pilot. Oh, good. good. They just throw the keys at you and say, like, uh, just bring it back with a full tank of gas. Yeah, yeah. Private, <laughs> <Okay>. private jet. <laughs> But that was pretty fun. But, you know, being on the client campuses and flying around all the time, you know, it gets old. I think one of the the reasons why I left is because I had a puppy and I had to raise that puppy. So I moved over to Silicon Valley where, you know, I did a couple of different jobs there. So it's been a fun ride. Amanda, if you would love to tell us about what happened in college, I mean, that's obviously a very broad question. Yes. Um, it's kind of like the origin story. Oh, so, love it. Yeah. So I went to school for art. My dad called me up one day. He said, hey, uh, your brother's going into the computer science department. Can you take the CS 101 class with him? And I said, okay, I will help my brother so that he doesn't fail. Uh, found out that I was really good at it became like a computer science department lab instructor, uh, tutor and everything. My brother did fail anyways, even though I was trying to help him, (laughs) but I kept with it. And to this day, like even I took an assembly language class 
And the teacher said, you know, only 10% of you will actually use assembly language in your day-to-day life. I think five years later, after being in the field, I messaged my professor. I was like, hey, guess what? (laughs) I'm one of those that work with assembly all the time. Did you message them in assembly? No, that would have been a good idea, but I was pretty basic. (laughs) Um, But I look back and, you know, I somewhat struggled because... It was just a completely new thing, but it was rewarding when you learn something and you can apply it. And so I always say, if you're creative or if you have that creative sense to you, I would try computer science or computer security because you never know if you're good at it. I mean, it takes a, a mind to think outside of the box to you know apply that adversarial mindset. I feel like if you really have that creative edge, you can do well in this field. I see that there is a common thread between folks that are creative and folks that are in security. We interviewed Michael Hendricks, who also spoke at the strike event that you spoke at. And he has a creative side where he likes to create electronic music. And it very much so ties into the security aspect of his everyday work. I can see that, you know, you, you're taking things apart, you're putting it together, you're digging into things, thinking creatively, like, how does someone with a darker side think like what would they be doing on that side but i can also see that coming into play with how can i create this amazing flower wall how can i create a water vortex table do you see that connection when you started taking the computer science classes that it wasn't it was a different form of art yeah i think it's just creating something you're taking these small components and trying to configure them in a way that would do something or you break it down and you see how it's built and you try to recreate it. It's kind of the same as art. When I'm looking at sculpture construction, when I was making those boxes for my daughter's birthday, I would scour the web like, okay, so that's how you do the inner structure with cardboard. So how do you put the outside of it? It's it's kind of the same with code. It's like, here's the inner structure or the algorithm, right? How can you apply this algorithm or tweak it for something else? Even like reverse engineering, you're taking apart something just to figure out how what it does. Um, And then you have like that puzzle aha moment, like I solved it. Yay. (laughs) Move on to the next one. (laughs) That must be very satisfying. And and you mentioned that you're, you're really good with speaking to journalists and interviews because you explain things in a way that people understand. I really think we need an explanation of what are meow, me meows. Oh, me meows. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. I think there was a question is like, what do I collect? Uh, I think now my daughter is really into me meows. They're basically like these little cats that are like food themed. So it's like a cat with um, French fries or a cat, a hamburger cat or something like that. She really loves them. So I'm trying to collect them all. (laughs) But you used to collect hotel cards? Yes. Yes. So when I was in consulting, I flew around a lot to different places. And so I would just accumulate a whole box of hotel card keys and, you know, all different types of colors and, and everything. Did I do anything with it? I was hoping to make a big art piece with it, but I think in the last move, I lost them all. (laughs) So I'll have to collect something else now. (laughs) I need need to come back to Meows. This is a, what, what is this? This is a, like a toy? No, it's a, okay. They're like little figurines, little toy figurines. Got it. And you're, and you're collecting them. Yes. Yes. For my daughter. (laughs) Do you have a lot of them? Uh, I just, I, I have a couple of them, but I'm starting to collect them. It's just hard to find some of them because they're in like mystery boxes. So I never know what I'm going to get. Is this like a beanie baby thing? Yeah, sort of in a way, but it's like mystery, mystery boxes. So you know, it's kind of like a, a gamble of what you're going to get. 
kind of like Pokemon cards. You never know what's inside there. Is this something that, you know, like Beanie Babies, is this going to appreciate in value over time and there'll be a TLC reality show at some point for folks that collect meme meows? I don't know, but I hope that's the case. Uh, it's so new to me that I didn't even know it was, exists until recently. So all the little girls that I know, they're all into these meows. So I guess I got to jump on board. <laughs> got it. My, I have two daughters, eight and 10, and they're into, well, my 10-year-old, not so much anymore. My eight-year-old is still into LOL dolls. Is that? Oh, yes. So, we, we went through that phase too. So oh, you're past we, the LOL dolls yes. phase. Yes. <laughs> oh, gosh. All right. So maybe meows are on the other side of the LOL dolls phase. We'll see how that goes. So it's funny, I I assume this was something you created, me oh, meow, no, because no. <laughs> I, I have seen a photo of you in the past where you are wearing like cat ears on headphones. Was that sort of a thing that you did for a while? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I try to make the meetings fun. Sometimes when I join meetings, I would wear my, I don't think I have it here. I have a pink balaclava. Oh, nice. But usually I try to make my folks laugh. I think the last time, I th one, of, one of the last jobs I had the last day, like the last day I was leaving, I put on a dinosaur costume and walked out the office wearing my dinosaur costume. <laughs> well, this is one of those ones that's sort of semi-inflatable. Yes, and, and, the T-Rex oh one. The yeah. T-Rex one. Wow. And people probably didn't know it was you, right? They just saw this semi-inflatable T-Rex running around. Yeah. And, and in the office, they had like a, a unicycle. So I would get on the the T-Rex costume on top of the unicycle and ride around. And you can ride a unicycle? I was yeah. just going to say, of <laughs> yes. course, of course you can ride a unicycle. What can't you do? I want you to start listing the things that you can't do. I we'll... can't do. I, I can say I, I can juggle. I can juggle on the unicycle. I can do balloon animals. I can do stilts. I, I just had a weird childhood. <laughs> that sounds like an amazing childhood. That, yeah. sounds, that sounds incredible. Um, so if you hadn't gotten that introduction to sort of InfoSec and reverse engineering and assembly and uh, back when you were in college and you stayed with your art major and you stayed in sort of like the fine art creative space, where do you think you'd be right now? Do you think you still would have somehow stumbled upon this field or would you be, would you be more squarely in, in the, the fine art creative space? I, I think I would have leaned towards security and maybe, maybe, um, my goal was to be like a, a graphic web designer. So I was already building my own flash websites. I, I didn't know coding before. Like my first coding experience was flash action script, but I saw the writing on the wall when HTML5 came out and I was like, uh, maybe this is not the best career path to go down. I really wanted to create really cool, you know, sites, kind of like what Nike websites have, where it's all moving and everything. I even in college, when I wasn't in computer science, I hacked the Wiimote to control my, my flash website to kind of like navigating like in a game. So there's kind of like this mixture of like game design and website design that I really wanted to go down. But, you know, I, I couldn't see that as a full career after doing computer science. <laughs> I think it was meant to be. Where you're at, it was meant to be. <laughs> yeah, it feels like if you'd stayed in that sort of creative web design space, especially in Flash Script or something, you would have you would have stumbled upon a vulnerability at some point, or we'd have stumbled upon like, hey, how come this thing is is doing stuff that it shouldn't? And maybe you would have pulled at that thread. I don't know. I like to see that that separate universes, those two universes coming back together and still being in a, in a similar place. Um, we are coming up on time. Amanda, before we wrap everything up, is there anything in your 
career of being interviewed and history of being recorded or on camera or anything that maybe didn't go as planned and you would like to clear the air? Yeah. Um, recently, or well, not recently, a year or two ago, I did like an infotainment for Wired. And one of the questions was, you know, is Red Hat really a type of hacker? And then I said no, because it's a Linux distribution. And then I totally completely cut off the explanation of why I said no. So I just wanted to clear the air. Like I know what Red Hat is, folks. So I hope um, I hope that clears up all those crazy comments on that YouTube video. <laughs> so the, the 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 people that have seen that video and wrote nasty things on on the YouTube comments, they are under the impression that Amanda Russo doesn't know what Red Hat is. Is that is that is that what happened? Yes, yes, yeah. Gosh. Well, so what is Red Hat, Amanda? Let's just let's get that quote out there. What is a Red Hat or what is Red Hat? Yeah, well, originally it's meant for a Linux distribution that has been around for a while for for servers. But now there's all of these new hats that have come out uh, with gray hat, white hat, black hat, blue hat, red hat. In the new sense, traditionally, red hat or red teaming is meant for, I guess, security, security terms. Blue hat, of course, now we have blue hat the podcast is <laughs> another hat. That's a new term. Um, but originally it was not. So um, I think terms change over time. But yes, it's first a Linux distribution. <laughs> it sounds to me like she has a very solid understanding of what Red Hat is. Take that, YouTube commenters. <laughs> I think Red Hat was actually the first OS I used on the job uh, when I did, yeah. It's been a while. Where can folks go to learn more about this team that you're on and the work that they do called Morse? Yeah. So recently we had an article come out on the Microsoft blog um, that it kind of explained what the team does. There's also a nice little video that you can watch on the article, but I definitely recommend checking it out and just seeing what the team does. Cause you know, we're always looking for new folks. We are trying to expand like our reach to different teams and orgs. Um, even if you work for Microsoft or you don't, or if you're a client, you know, it's really good to have that idea of like what our team does and because we do interface with a lot of outside folks as well so definitely check it out you can also listen to the very first episode of the blue hat podcast which mr david weston was our inaugural guest and talks a lot about morse and runs morse morse is is his team is that accurate yes i think so <laughs> i'm on the team okay yeah i was just trying to i was just trying to ask an awkward question <laughs> and then uh you have a lot of places online that people can find you but where would you like to point folks to learn more about you where can they reach out and what kind of stuff would you like folks to reach out to you about if anything yeah i think the best way to reach me is on twitter for about stuff that i do i would say go to my website maurunicorn.org um, i'm also on mastodon there's just so many social platforms now that you just kind of spread yourself on. I would say pick one and try to contact me on it. The best way, if, if you can, I would say just write a GitHub issue and I'll definitely respond to it. <laughs> but um, yeah, those are all the places. The, the social thing is, is hard. I, I keep hearing about the new, well, there's this one now and this one like, I can't, I just can't <laughs> pick one. Is there anything that's coming up? Is there any conferences you're going to be speaking at? Is there, is there anything that's coming up where folks can maybe see what you're working on or hear you speak about what you're working on? Um, not anything 
uh, yet. So usually it's always the last minute with me, <laughs> um, depending on what my schedule is like. But yeah, I'll definitely let folks know if there's something coming up. I've been trying to wean myself from the conference circuits. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> I guess that uh, that's where the social the media social media comes in because you you post a lot. It's, it's very entertaining and it's very informative. So that's like, uh, I would say that's the most common place for folks to go to or like your Twitter that's where I, I saw that you released the, the tool to GitHub. So um, I would recommend folks to go check her out on Twitter because there's a lot of great stuff that she's got going there. Well, Amanda Rousseau, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being on the Blue Hat podcast. We would actually love to have you on the Blue Hat stage at some point in the near future, maybe presenting to the Blue Hat community. That would be wonderful. Um, we will put all of the URLs and links. Uh, I guess that's the same thing. We'll put all the URLs in the show notes for this episode. So you don't need to write anything down, um, but make sure you check out Malware Unicorn on Twitter. And uh, we'd love to talk to you on another episode of the podcast, if not the Blue Hat Conference. Amanda, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us for the Blue Hat Podcast. If you have feedback, topic requests, or questions about this episode, please email us at bluehat at microsoft.com or message us on Twitter at msftbluehat. Be sure to subscribe for more conversations and insights from security researchers and responders across the industry by visiting bluehatpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.